Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, um, well, for who you are and that you've revealed that to us, that you've shown it to us, that, that you've not left us out in the dark, but that you've, you've brought your light into this world. You sent your light into this world. And, and Father, you have opened our eyes to it. We can recognize you. We can know you. We can interact with you. We can, we can praise you and honor you and glorify you because you have made us able to do that. I thank you. Father, as, as we sang the songs and, and thinking about who you are to us, we recognize every day we struggle, we, we fight in our flesh to replace you with, with things, the fallen things, uh, created things. We recognize our need for you to be that preeminent and prominent uh, leader in our life that take, to take that place of ownership and, and authority. Father, we admit that to you. We, we confess it now. I, I pray, God, that as we sang those words and, 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 and sang those, sang, said the things that to be our everything, Father, hear us. That you would push everything aside. That you, that, that you would give us strength to repent of those things, to turn from them and recognize you as God alone. Pray, Father, that, that we would live a life that doesn't just come here on Sunday mornings and, and sing Hosanna but that puts it into action and that the things that we do, the way that we live, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the, the things that we involve ourselves in, Father, that they, would, that they would be us striving to live worthy of this calling that you've given us, striving to, to live in, in this person that you're creating us to be, that you're making us to be. We thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have not forgotten us, that, that the struggles we face, they're not in vain. They're not empty. They're not useless. But that you are using them for our good. Father, we thank you for your son, for the hope that we have in him, the redemption that he has provided, and the restoration that we look forward to. We thank you, Father, for working. I pray now that as we open your word, that word that you've given to us, that we might know you, that through your spirit, you would speak. Holy Spirit, visit us now. In the words that I speak, in the thoughts that are in our heads, in, in the intentions and the motivations, make them right. Call us to the carpet. Challenge us, grow us, shape us, and mold us. Refine us and, and create in us a pure and clean heart. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Ruth, chapter 4. We're going to be in Ruth one more week. But every week we need to come, I think, and just kind of get a feel, especially for people who haven't been, been with us through this. We need to get a feel for what the story is about. So just real quickly, it starts in a time of, of tragedy and, and a time of difficulty. And, and in fact, we understand from the time that it happened, from understanding the setting that it took place in, it was a dark time. It was difficult. There was hardship. In fact, there was a famine in, in this place, Bethlehem. It meant the house of bread, but they had no bread. And so this man, Elimelech, makes a decision to pick his family up and move to a place where he could find food. And it seems like a noble decision. Seems like, man, that's the kind of father I want to be that's going to go out and provide for my family and do what's right for them. But he went to a place, to a godless people, to a place that had been cursed by God in its history. He went to a place seeking provision, not from God, but that what he could provide by his own hand. And while he's there, he dies. And he leaves his wife and his two sons in this land, this godless land. They had no family. They had, had, had no connection. They had no support. He leaves them there. His sons take wives. They take Moabite wives. And, and while that's not forbidden by law, it certainly wasn't something that would have been uh, approved of or that, 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 the, that their people, their, their family would have said, hey, you need to go and do this. This, this was not something that was suggested. They took Moabite wives because that's where they lived. 
And as they lived and they had time with their wives, the sons died. Leaving this woman, Naomi, the one person left in this family that was related by blood, leaving her all alone in the world with these two daughters-in-law. <clears throat> she hears word from home, from Bethlehem, that things are going well, that the famine is over. This famine had lasted for over 10 years. And it's finally finished. And having no idea what else to do, having no, no idea where else to turn, she thinks, I've got to go home. I've got to go to that place where the Lord is working, where God is at work. I've got to go there. She gets up and she takes her daughters-in-law with her. And along the way, she recognizes, or at least from her perspective, she's, she decides that maybe this isn't the best thing for them. And she, she pleads with them, turn around and go home. Go back to your people. I have nothing for you. I am empty. I have nothing. And you will live a hopeless existence if you follow me. Now, just real quickly, think about what that, what that leads them to, what that turns them around to. I want you to not follow me to the place where God is working. And I want you to go back to your godless people, people who worship a false god. As we recognize truth, as we can understand more than what she, she saw, we need to recognize that just because it looks like that, that cultural perspectives and cultural expectations will be met. See, see, she was wanting them to be able to find a family. She was wanting them to be able to find husbands and to be able to have children and live up to what the culture expected them to live up to. I want you to have those things. But she was sending them to a place where God was not present. He was not preached. He was not adored. He was not worshipped. Sent, sent them, desiring them to go back into darkness. The best thing that she could have done was, was brought those women along and, and begged them to stay with her. One of them, Orpah, says, you're right. I'd rather have that than follow you. I'd rather, I'd rather go back and, 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 and walk in this way that I can see how everything fits and I can understand how everything's going to work out and I can feel like I'm in control of all that's going on in my life. And so she turns and she leaves Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth, she clings to Naomi. Go back, Ruth. Go back, Naomi says. And Ruth says, no, I'm never going to leave you. I don't know what happened in Ruth. I don't know what she saw. I don't know what she had learned in the time that she had been with this family. I don't know, I don't know what lessons she might have been taught by her husband. But she understood that there was hope, that there was something more, I think. I, I think that she saw that there was, that there was something greater to be, to be grasped, something greater to be longed for. And she says to Naomi, she says, I will never leave you. I'm going to go to your land, your land. It's going to be my land. Your people are going to be my people. Your God. Now, I just want you to think about this. Your God, the one, the one who <laughs> was blamed by Naomi. Naomi said this. The one who killed her husband and her sons and left her all alone in this land. That God is the one that Ruth says, your God is going to be my God. That's big. And you know what? I'm going to go there and I'm going to live there and, and the place that you die, that place where you die, that's where I'm going to be till I die. This is my home. This is where I belong. In Christian speak, and in, 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 in looking back, we understand that there's this thing that has happened in Ruth that's changed her. This brought her out of this godless existence and gave her a longing for God and a, a longing for His people. And we can see that. And so as, as believers, we, we shouldn't be challenging or, or encouraging people to live up to cultural expectations first, but bringing them to God first and, and, and revealing to them that there is hope, that there is a way. You may not see it, but he'll reveal it. And seeing this, this process that he brought these people through, this, this process, this work that he began to do, God was continuing it. And Ruth and Naomi, they show up just in time for barley harvest. They're hungry, they, they have no way of providing for themselves, and they show up just in time for harvest to take place, and so they're able to go out and work. And Ruth goes out and she does what would, would be um, akin to maybe picking up aluminum cans or maybe going to the food pantry and, and picking up food. 
at the food pantry, she begins to glean at the field. And simply what that means is she's picking up the leftovers. She picks up the leftovers and everything that's left, she, she has an opportunity. This is God's way of demonstrating his grace and his provision for people less fortunate. <clears throat> and she does that every day. And in this, Ruth meets a man named Boaz. She comes home and she tells Naomi about it. Hey, I, I gleaned in this field and it, it belonged to this guy named Boaz. And Naomi, she gets all excited and she's all ecstatic and she's celebrating all because he just so happens. He just so happens to be a relative of Elimelech, her dead husband. And in Jewish culture, that was very important. Because in that culture, in their tradition, in their law, Elimelech could be one who redeemed them, who stood in their stead. Naomi came back to these people thinking she had nothing. Call me bitter, she said, because I left full and I come back empty. I am bitter. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm empty. And she suddenly, she suddenly brought face to face with the truth that God has not forgotten them, that he's going to provide for them, that he's going to take care of them. And she praises him for it. <laughs> Praise be to God. We have a redeemer. We have someone who will protect us, who will provide for us, who will bring us back into right standing. And she sends, Naomi, or she, she sends Ruth at the time of of, of threshing, she sends Ruth to go to him, to entreat him, or in, uh, in, not entice, that's really the wrong word, but to, to question him about, hey, we want you to redeem us. Ruth goes and she does it. And Boaz, he's struck, he's moved, he's touched. He's an old man. She could have done, she, she, she could have gone to any man. She could have gone to any young guy who would have had a long life with her, who would, have, who would have been that man who could have provided for her. But she comes to him and she says, she pops this question. And she says, Boaz, I'm your servant. Would you spread your wing over me? Provide for me because you are a redeemer. And Boaz is touched. He's moved. And he loves her and he, and he looks at her and he says, you know what? I want to do this for you. I will do this for you. But you need to understand one thing. There's someone closer than you. There's someone else that has to be questioned first. There's someone else who we need to talk to first because he is the one that has the right to redeem you before me. And this seeming snag pops up in their plan. Now, as we've gone through this story, as, we, as we've read these passages, I've given you a summary today, but as we've read these passages and seen the process, these are the things that I've wanted you to get every week. I want you to understand that these were dark days. They lived in dark times. But God was still at work. And in the midst of their suffering... They could have easily been angry and bitter and pointed their finger at God. It's like so many people we know. And because suffering exists, I won't believe in the God of the Bible. But they praised God. They honored God. And yeah, Naomi was bitter. She was upset. But she continued to give him credit and continued to bring him glory and continued to praise him. You see, suffering exists not because God is distant or uncaring or, or doesn't, uh, doesn't take part in this world. These are dark days but he's still at work. Suffering exists. Suffering is because sin is. We all know it. It's something we share in. It's, it's a principle that we all live in, that we all understand, that we all know. Every one of the, every person sitting in this room has some hardship that you've dealt with in life. It's the reality of this life. Suffering is because sin is, period. And then they see God continuing to work and bless them, and do good to them. They were looking for someone to have favor on them, to show them grace and, and mercy, and to, to give them something they knew they didn't deserve, and God did it. You see, suffering is because sin is. But grace is because God is. You see, He's not distant, He's not, he's not unconcerned, He's not uncompassionate, He's not left this world to itself. He is a good and benevolent creator that looks at his creation with compassion and concern. 
And he shows us something we could never earn or deserve. It's his favor. It's his grace. It's his goodness. And Ruth and Naomi, they saw that as, as, as Naomi recognizes, we have a, we have a, a, a redeemer. I'd forgotten all about this guy. I didn't know we had this hope. I didn't know this could happen. They recognize his grace. Grace is because God is. He is the God of the Bible who's got a righteous wrath and who allows suffering to exist because sin exists. But he is a good God who shows us grace and who has revealed it because that's who he is. You see, but he didn't just show them goodness. He didn't just show them this, this, this love and this, and this provision because, oh, well, I just want them to recognize it. You see, he had a plan for them. You see, his grace... It led them to a place where they were ready to be redeemed. And last week, that's where we saw the, we saw the tide turn. We saw things change in their lives. We saw this point where, where things flipped over. And we had seen God's providential hand working. We had seen Him providing a way and working this process and, and making these coincidences come to be. And we saw the reason He was doing it. Because of redemption. His desire to redeem them to bring them back to a standing in which they belonged. See, he, he, he showed them their, his grace. Grace is because God is. And this redemption that they longed for, that they needed, it was possible because grace is. Sin is, or suffering is because sin is. Grace is because God is. Redemption is because grace is. Because God is gracious and good, redemption is a possibility. It is a hope that we had to look forward to. It's something that can change us, that can bring us out of darkness into light. It's something that can fulfill all the promises that we know that He's made. It's, it's that process where, where He says, you are mine you can't make your way. You can't do what you want. You can't, you, you, you can't come to me on your own, but I take you, I pay the price for you, and I put you here with me. I bring you into relationship with me. That's redemption. That's what happened with these women. They had no way to make it on their own. But this man, Boaz, says, you know what? I want to redeem you. That's why we've looked at this book as, as not just simply a story, a love story, but Ruth is a story of providence, God's providence, His invisible hand working through the circumstances of life to bring redemption. But I, I've recognized this week, and you'll see as we go through the passage today, I've recognized this week that I named it wrong. I, I titled it incorrectly. Because redemption... It's not the end of the story. It's a great part of the story. But this redemption, it led to restoration. It led to them being made into the people that they were meant to be. Let's just see how that comes together. Ruth chapter 4. <clears throat> now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, I just want you to, I, I want you to get this. So I, I think that's important to understand what's going on, <clears throat> what's happening here. And to really get that, we're going to have to think about what's in Ruth chapter 3. See, Ruth chapter 3, we come to this place, and I, I kind of shared the story with you. Ruth goes to Boaz, and she pops this question, Boaz, will you be our redeemer? That's essentially what she says to him. Boaz, will you redeem us? Now, some people look at that as a marriage proposal. 
I don't think it's necessarily a marriage proposal. I think that she was certainly letting Boaz know that she was open to that, that she longed for it, that she desired it. But I, I don't think that she's ultimately proposing marriage to him. I, don't, I, I think that she's wanting him to be the protection, to be the provision that God uses to redeem them. Remember, Boaz, when he first met Ruth, Ruth chapter 2, Boaz looks at Ruth, he talks to her, he tells her he's heard of her, and he says, you know what? The Lord repay you. The Lord give back to you all the good things that you've done. This God who, who you have chosen to find your protection from, this, this one who you've come to, to find covering under his wing. It's kind of the picture of a chick being under a mother chicken's wing. And, and you've come to that place and, and you've sought protection from him. You've sought provision for him. I hope that he does these things for you. And Ruth now turns and says to him, using the same kind of language, I want you to be that person that stands in his stead and provides for us, is used by God to cover us, to protect us, to, to redeem us. You see, she's not wanting something instead of God, but she recognizes that the, that, that the tangible things of God come through people that he uses. I don't think that she's proposing marriage. I think she's looking at Boaz and saying, you could be that guy. Coincidences, they don't just happen. Look at all the things that have occurred. I just happened to end up in your field. I went out to glean. I was hungry. I wanted food. I just happened to end up in this field that belongs to you. I just happened to go home and tell Naomi about it. And Naomi just happened to tell me that, that you're a, re a relative, that you're a redeemer. It just so happens that you're in a place where you can do this thing. Two plus two equals four. You're the guy. You're the fulfillment of the blessing that you prayed over me. You're, you're the way that God is going to do this. Redeem us. I want you to redeem us. And Boaz is like, yeah, I want to be that guy. I want to do that thing for you. I want to redeem you. I want to bring you back into right standing. But there's one that stands closer than me. There's somebody else. See, there's a snag in the plan. There's an obstacle. There's, there's this thing that stands between them that has to be overcome. And that's the thing. It, it, it's, it's this fact that there's a relative that's closer. There's someone in the family tree that's between him and Elimelech, and he's the one that has the right to do this work. And so Boaz devises a plan of his own. He gets up and he goes to the city gate. And at the city gate, see, the elders gather at the city gate every day. It was a daily thing. They would show up there. They'd hang out. And they would, they would uh, kind of be like a court for people. People that were having trouble, they'd come to them for a decision. There would be decisions made. There would be, there would be uh, uh, laws or, or, or um, uh, statutes put in place for the people so that they could be led and so that, so that people could live in an orderly fashion. That's what the elders, the leaders of the city would do. And he goes to this place and he finds these elders and he has them sit down. And while he's there, you know what just happens to happen? What just coincidentally occurs? This guy. The one that stood between him and redeeming Ruth and Naomi. This guy shows up. And he says, hey, you. Never uses his name. Never tells us who he is. Never, never dawns on, gives light to, to who this guy is. He just says, hey, you, so-and-so, come over here and sit down. we got to talk. And he enters into this negotiation. And he says, I just want you to know that there's some land for sale by Naomi. You remember Naomi. She was the wife of Elimelech. He left to go to Moab. And, and she's come back now and she's living on this land, but she wants to sell it. And it's your right to do it. I want you to know about that. And if you're not going to buy it, if you're not going to take advantage of this opportunity, let me know so that I can. Now, a lot of people, as they, as they talk about this and, and talk about this negotiation, they, they kind of give this guy a hard time because it, it seems that he doesn't know the land is for sale. It seems that he doesn't really know what's going on and they, they, they call him lazy or that he is not concerned with, with doing what's right. But the, he was bound in no way, he was bound in no way to buy this land. 
He was not Elimelech's brother. He was not, he was not bound by the law to do this deed. He, he, he had the opportunity. That's all it was, was an opportunity. And, and another thing, the reason that Boaz is coming to him to tell him that the land is for sale is because Boaz just found out himself. The, the, the night before, Ruth comes to him and says, hey, I want you to do this. We want you to do this. The reason that Boaz knows it's for sale is because Ruth came and told him directly. And Boaz, who is also not bound by the law, he observes the law. And rather than short-circuit the process, rather than, rather than skip ahead and, and try and go some shortcut route, he says, no, Ruth, we can't do this. We've got a process that we've got to follow. We've got a, we've got a style, we've got a, a tradition, we've got a law that, that has to be fulfilled, that has to be met. And I can't just come and, and, and step in the way. So this guy, I think, is, as Boaz is telling him about it, he's like, really? Well, that sounds pretty good. I like the idea of more land. I want more land. But what I want us to think about first is the process. See, we live in this, this culture, this, this, this time, that we don't like the process. We don't appreciate the process. Here's what I mean. We want it our way right now. We don't like to wait. We don't like to expend the effort. We don't like, everything's at the click of a finger. You know, I want my computer to give me nanoseconds of results. I want thousands and thousands of results from Google like that. I, I, I want to know what I want to know right now. I want, I want my house right now. I want my dream house to be the house I live in today. Why do you think the housing market is like it is? I want all the stuff to fill that house. I want it right now. Why is credit card debt so high? Because we're not willing to wait. We're not willing to go through the process. We're not willing to expend the effort. We're wanting to take shortcuts. We're wanting to, to cut the process in half. We're wanting to find ways where we can enjoy what we want right now. And we've forgotten about this process. But what we need to remember is God is God in the process. He's God of the process. You see, it, at creation, at creation, he looked on creation. We talked about this last week. He looked on creation. He created. Everything was perfect. Man and woman rebelled. And he had every right at that point to turn his back and walk away and leave it to itself. He had every right at that point to destroy it all. He could have been like an author who starts chapter 1 and doesn't like the way it starts. He pulls the paper, wads it up, and throws it in the trash. He could have been that. He could have been that. He could have done that. He had every right to do it. He's the creator. But he chose not to. He chose to redeem. He chose to restore. He chose to make it new. And he could have done that. He is powerful enough that he could have done it right then. He didn't have to wait. He didn't have to, to look at it and say, well, let's see. Let's enact step two. Now remember, this isn't plan B. God always knew this was going to happen. God always knew. He, he knew before the foundations of the earth were ever laid that Jesus Christ, His Son, was going to be coming. He knew that Jesus Christ would be the Redeemer that would come, who would die on a cross, who would raise again from the dead, providing hope of life. He knew that was going to happen. But He was powerful enough. In that moment, He could have said, you know what? Boom, you're restored. I've made you new. He's got the power to do it. He's got the ability to do it. He could have made the sacrifice. He could have paid the price. He could have done it all right then. He could have looked into the future knowing the Bible clearly teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that He knows all believers from all time. He's always known you. If you believe in Him, if you know Him, if you have been saved, He has always known you. Your name has always been in His book. The Bible clearly teaches that. That's not something we can argue or debate. That's what the Bible says. He's always known you. And at that moment, he could have made all things new and put every saved person in it. He could have said, this is what I want. But he didn't. He didn't enact plan B. He enacted step two of plan A. Step one, create. 
Make everything as I want it to be. Allow Satan in to tempt these people. And when they fall, I'm going to come and I'm going to show them what they should have done and I'm going to confront them in their sin and I am going to put in motion step two, redemption. He started a process that has lasted since the, since the fall, that has been in motion since the fall. He is the God of this process. He's the one that is working in the midst of it to bring it about in individual people's lives. Boaz recognizes, I can't short-circuit the process. I can't step across those lines. I've got to follow this process. It's what's been laid out. This is God's plan. And so as we sit here today, as we sit here today, living in days that are so like the ones that we're reading about in the book of Ruth, you see, this, one of the reasons I love this book so much is that it's so relevant. Even thousands of years later, it's so relevant. Those were dark days. There were terrible things happening. People were living as they pleased. They couldn't have cared less about God. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. It's, it's our time. It's where we live. That's our people. That's our culture. Even in a place that many people consider to be a Christian nation. People don't recognize God. They don't recognize His process. They don't, they don't recognize His authority. We live in dark days. People sitting in this room know what it is to be financially strapped. Who wonder where their next paycheck is going to come from. You think Ruth and Naomi didn't wonder what it was to, to be economically secure? They, they didn't long for that? You, didn't, you don't think that they wish that they didn't have to go out and glean? Pick up aluminum cans and go to the kitchen? No, they wanted to be secure. That's why they longed for redemption. You think Ruth and Naomi didn't understand what it was to know the, 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 what, what it was to, to, to be secure in their standing. They longed for redemption. There's people sitting in this room who long for a place in society, who long for a purpose. It's the same exact thing. The, 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 the surroundings are different. The circumstances, the scenery, the scenery looks a little different, but the circumstances are the same. We long for redemption. We desire it. We, we, in our study on Sunday nights last week, we're dealing with, we were dealing with plurality and, and how can there be just one way? And what became abundantly clear is that these people who were, who were saying that Plurality is, is the right way, and, the, and if everybody could just agree to disagree and get along, there would be peace. You see, they long for peace. They want a, a content life. They want it to be quiet without disorder, without disruption, without chaos. They want peace. It's something we long for. But to find peace, we're going to have to find the God that set in motion a process to bring peace. But it's not peace in some temporal fashion. It's eternal, lasting, true peace that starts with peace with our Creator. We've got to be brought back in a right relationship with Him. We've got to be redeemed to Him. We live in the same time. We, we, we experience the same things. This is, this is our time. This is our book. This is our story. We know what it is to suffer. And we long for redemption. You see, in God, he's put, that, he's put that in motion. He's put that process in motion. And He says, I'm not going to just save them right now. I'm not going to do this work and, and just bless them right now with all of it at one time. I'm going to begin a process. And it is going to extend for however long he decides that it's going to extend. And, and he is going to work and he is going to do things that providentially bring about this plan that we can each come to know that, that, that as we recognize his truth, as we, as we see him work, that we can come and see he is redeeming us. You see, we can't short-circuit this process. He's the God of this process. And everything we choose, everything we do to try and bring ourselves happiness, 
Oh, if I have the right car, I'm going to be happy. If I have the right job, I'm going to be happy. If I have the right house, I'm going to be happy. If I can just look like this in front of people, if people can just pat me on the back, if people will just accept me as I am, if I can live with this thing in my life, I'm going to be happy. You see, that's short-circuiting the process. That's short-circuiting all that he's planned for us. Because his idea of redeeming you it's a process and it takes time. The Bible, the, the, the writers of Scripture, they recognize this. They understood this. The writer of Hebrews writes this. I should open my notes a little earlier. Well, you'll be glad to know we're only two pages away from here. What's that? Okay. The writer of Hebrews writes this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is Hebrews 12, verse 6 through 10. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now I want you to grasp what that refers to, what that means. You endure hardship. We deal with problems in life. Everything we have suffered to this point. I mean, there's, there's people in this room that have suffered loss in their families. There's people in this room who have suffered loss financially. There's people in this room who, who wander and just wander in circles wishing that they, they had purpose and meaning, who long for peace, who long for comfort, who long for, for joy. They long for these things. Every one of us. I, I, I do. You do. It's the, the reality of life. Suffering is because sin is. But this is the process. He allows you to deal with it. He allows you to endure it. To discipline you. Not to punish you. It's a different word. Not to punish you and smite you and break you down. To teach you. To instruct you. To grow you. What good father doesn't discipline his children? What loving parent looks at his child and, and recognizes that they are so flawed? From the moment they come out of the womb, they are the most selfish little creatures that exist. Feed me. Wipe me. Change my diaper. I don't care that it's the middle of the night. I don't care that you're trying to sleep or you're tired. I want you to serve me. They're not making a conscious decision in that, obviously. But they can't help it because that's who they are. What, what parent doesn't try to grow their child up out of that to teach them the right thing, to teach them truth and love them? Every good parent loves their children and wants to teach them and wants, to, wants them to grow up and, and be a, a solid part of society, to, to grow up and be a person that's respected that they can be proud of. So we discipline, we teach, we instruct. Sometimes that discipline is harsh and sometimes it hurts. And he even says, the writer of Hebrews recognizes, discipline's not fun. It's difficult. Sometimes it's painful. But God, he doesn't want you to just, to just go about life and do whatever you want to do and, and be however you want to be. He wants you to become like his holiness. He wants you to be what He is. You see, you can't ever be a God. You can't ever be God. But He wants you to be separate, to be distinct. He wants you to experience this perfection and His glory. And there's a process. He, he wants you to be holy. He wants you to be His. Recognizing that that's what's going to bring you peace. Recognizing that that's what's going to bring you joy. Recognizing that that's going to be the fulfillment and the hope that you find. He wants you to be like Him. 
The writer in Romans, Paul, says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we are called righteous because we believe, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it comes. Our peace with God comes through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, more than all those good it is great to be a believer. It is great to be redeemed. It is great to have that hope. But more than that, Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our suffering. Oh, wait a minute. You mean I lost my father and I'm supposed to rejoice? father's alive and he doesn't ever call me and i'm supposed to rejoice he lives just south of nixon last time i saw him he wouldn't even carry on a conversation with me talk to me about my laptop he doesn't come to christmas doesn't call My brother tried to contact him. My brother says, Dad, I want to have a relationship. I went about as far as my brother called me. Because my dad doesn't desire. He doesn't care. Doesn't seem to. And I'm supposed to rejoice in this? I've had people call me things and, and, and treat me as dirt because of things that they've heard about me. Am I supposed to rejoice in this? More than that, more than the salvation that we have, more than the knowledge that we are justified, that God has called us righteous, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering. Not simply for suffering's sake, but because of this, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame hope it doesn't let us down this is the confident expectation this is not some wishful thought it is a confident expectation that god is going to fulfill his promises and that when he says he's going to redeem you you will be redeemed you have that hope but you only learn it and recognize it through this process that he brings us through through this process of making you new. Now there's a point in your life where he says, you're mine. We, we, we call that conversion. We call it being justified by faith. But there's a process which he begins to bring you through, which cleanses you, which shapes you, which molds you, which changes you. Peter wrote to the early church, 1 Peter 1, 6-9, In this you rejoice. Speaking about the salvation, speaking about the things that they had, the hope they had because of Jesus Christ, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the reality, is that this process that we're in, it refines you. It, it, it makes you like silver. And, and, and as the silver is put into the fire, and as it is cooked and as it is heated, the impurities make their way out. They're cooked out. And these trials that we face, with this suffering that we deal with, it's like a refining process. Pushing out of us the impurities. Pushing out of us all those things that are dirty and that don't bring glory to God. So that when your faith is refined, when your faith is proven to be true, so that when your faith is seen by the world around you to be real, it brings praise and honor and glory to our Savior Jesus Christ. It's a process that He's bringing us through. James 1, 2-4, through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Don't miss those words. Lacking 
in nothing. This is this process of redemption that He is bringing us through. This process that leads not just to the point of salvation, but of restoration. You see, God didn't save you just to leave you as you are. He didn't save you just to leave you in the mess that you created out of your life. He created you to make you new. He created you and He sees in you what He sees in you and He brings you through this process that pushes out all the infirmities, or or, I'm sorry, all the impurities. And He makes you new. He makes you into what He created you to be. He's perfecting you. He's, He's bringing you to this place that you lack nothing. You see, He's restoring you. Suffering is because sin is. The grace we experience is because God is. Redemption exists because grace exists. If God was not a good God, He wouldn't care. But because He's a good God who wants to shower blessings on His people, He redeems us. He doesn't just redeem us to leave us in this mess. He redeems us so that eventually we can be restored. You see, He knew we needed the process. He knew that he knew that we needed this process. He knew that Boaz had to go through this process. I mean, think about this. Think about it. If if Boaz had walked into this situation and not had to work for for Ruth and Naomi, not had to go through some obstacle, not had to overcome in some way, when Boaz showed up, if everything was just that way, I'm hey, I'm gonna redeem you. Think of the God complex he could have had. I did this for you. But he had to submit himself to the process that God had placed in, put in place long before. Boaz, now, like Ruth and Naomi, have to go through this process to this point of redemption. And so he enters into this negotiation. And he, and he deals with this guy. We don't even know this guy. He deals with this guy. And let me tell you, when he hears this guy say, in verse 4, he says that the guy says, I'm going to redeem it. That sounds like a good opportunity. That sounds like what I want to do. I'm going to redeem it. You can know this, Boaz's heart sank. It sank. He wanted to redeem them. He loved them. He saw them. He looked at them, and he loved them. He wanted Ruth to be his wife. I think there was a part of Boaz, he was a noble man. Scripture tells us this. Boaz was a noble and worthy man. I think there was a part of him that said, that that would have thought, you know what, that is what's necessary. That's, That's what needs to happen. I'll step back. But you can know his heart sank when he heard these words. You can know that 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 he was dealing with this, that that he wanted this. And then Boaz said, This is verse 5, Ruth 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field. From the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That's another tradition, another law that would have have been required, something that would have had to happen. This Jewish culture. He says, Then the Redeemer said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. It just so happened. It just so happened. This language that we've all heard all the way through this book of Ruth, it just so happened that this man was not in a place to redeem it. It looked like an obstacle. It looked like a problem. It looked like things were going to come undone. It looked like there was going to be some issue that couldn't be overcome. But when God is involved, there is no real obstacle. So in this culture we live in, in this, in this, I want it right now, my way culture we live in, we short circuit the process and we look at, we look at our options and we look and we look and we choose and we think, oh, well, God's going to give me the path that has no resistance. I'm going to go that way because it looks so easy. So instead of wait and work and save for this dream house that I want, I'm going to, I'm going to start paying on a mortgage that I can't afford and I'm going to put myself in so much debt that when the, when the interest rates, rates rise, I won't be able to pay my payment and they're going to have to foreclose on me. But I can have what I want right now. See, that's how we short circuit the process. 
and all those paths that look like they have obstacles, when we're walking with God, when we're following God, those obstacles aren't real. They're just points in time where God begins to show us that he's still at work in this dark world. It just so happened that this guy who stood in his way was not in a place to be able to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Yeah, he he couldn't do what, what he wanted to do. He couldn't be the guy that stood up and said, I want that land. Because with that, with, with that land came Ruth. Wait a minute, I'm not in a place to be able to do that. It just so happened. See, God had this process all planned out. He always knew it was going to occur this way. He recognized that Boaz needed to go through this process. It's the same way that he deals with us. He recognizes that we need to go through this process. And he recognizes that when we're walking with him, when we're following him, there is no obstacle that's too big for him. And sometimes the path we need to walk is not the path that looks so straight and so simple. But it's the path that leads us right to an obstacle. Consider this building. Consider the fact that we're about to move. Think about this. Here we're, we're, we're faced with this challenge. Oh, it's an obstacle. God must not have it. He must not be in it. It must not be his will. No. It's part of the process. It's part of what we need to experience as a church. There's people, they're, they're not even here today. That we're going to meet because he moves us. There's people that aren't even here today. There, 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 there's people that, that, that we don't even know yet. He's going to bring us to. There's people that aren't here today. Some are that haven't found a way to plug in. That in this move, this challenge, that, that they'll, be, they'll become the person that God uses to meet some need. He'll be the, they'll, they'll be the people that, that God brings in and, and, and they're going to have the, the, the skills and the abilities and the, and the gift sets that we need to have something done. Just because there's obstacles or, or seeming obstacles, just because it looks difficult doesn't mean that God's not in it. It's part of the process. We endure hardship, understanding it's discipline, understanding it's growing us, understanding that it's shaping us and it's giving us this, this picture. And, and, and helping us experience God's holiness. It's, it's, it's making us into to the likeness of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not, the, it's not the easy path that matters most. It's the process that He brings us through. The struggles, the trials, the temptations. The difficulties that we face. And in His providence, He provides a way that it will just so happen that something happens and fixes that problem. And that obstacle that looks so big and so hard to deal with will fall down. And we will see Him work. And we will recognize His grace. And we will recognize that we're being redeemed. And we'll recognize that that process is leading us to restoration. You see, that's what's happening in Ruth. Because the story doesn't end with this negotiation. <clears throat> Take my right of redemption at the end of verse 6. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. It's kind of like a handshake. A little more disgusting for us. I mean, if we agree on something, I'm not going to give you my shoe. That wouldn't be right. We wouldn't accept it. But that's what they did. He took off his dirty sandal. He hands it to him. He says, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz, reciprocating, takes his sandal off and says, here's my sandal. And they traded shoes. I don't know what that does. I don't know what that does to your closet, how many different mismatched shoes you have. But that's what happened. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, listen to this, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the, the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. I want you to understand this. Boaz is sitting there, he's, he, he's, he's in the midst of this negotiation, and he says, hey, buddy, if you buy this land, you're going to get Ruth, and you're going to get Naomi. And the guy recognizes, hey, I can't be that guy. He steps back, he says, you buy it, here's my shoe. And Boaz says, 
here's my shoe. And they trade shoes. And he turns to the people that are standing there. And they are witnesses to this, to this momentous occasion. They're, they're, they're witnesses. They see it. You see, the reality is, is that we live in this process. There are witnesses all around us that can see God's glory working in us. This process, it's not simply so that you can grow, although that's a big part of it, so that His glory can be seen. You see, there's witnesses all around you that as He works and brings you through the process, they see it working out in you. You know who is ultimately glorified? Not you. But God. And he turns to these people and he says, you're witnesses of this. And today I own this land. But today I also am bringing Ruth to be my wife. And this redemption that Ruth longed for, that she desired so much, this, 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 this position in life that she wanted so desperately, she was given. In verse 11, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord... Listen, they are, they are praying for these people. They are, they are blessing these people. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renewed in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you in this young woman or by this young woman. We're going to talk about that more next week. But they recognized, they recognized that God was going to have to continue to work. That the process wasn't over, that there was more to be done. They recognized that God still had work to do and that the true blessing, they would recognize the true blessing when all things were put back the way they were meant to be. And so Boaz, verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. I want you to recognize this. She did not have any children at this point. Ten years she'd been married to this guy. Ten years before he died, she'd been married and no children. She gets married to Boaz and conceives a child and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, you think Naomi's all forgotten and left out in the cold? You think that God's not thinking of her? You think that there's not some part of the process that remains for her? Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. You know whose name they wanted to be renowned in Israel? They wanted God to be glorified. He has not forgotten you. Proclaim it. Sing his praises. Tell people about it. May his name be renowned. May he be known. May, may people worship him and adore him for what he's done. See, he shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and, and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see, God wasn't done with the process until things were restored. He wasn't done doing the work, simply providing redemption. It's only part of the story. He's making all things new. See, the writer Paul, as he wrote in Romans, if, if everything stopped at redemption, if everything was just about salvation, verses 8 through 28, through, or chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 would mean, read much differently. But he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If God wasn't working towards restoration, that verse would stop it. He works for the good of all people who are called according to his purpose. 
They just live in a mess, but he makes it okay. Okay? They, they screw everything up, and God just comes in and makes it right. No, he's got a purpose. That purpose is not simply to save people, but to restore them. If you're here today and you trust in Christ, you have been saved and you have been called just because of your faith. You have been called righteous because of your faith. His plan for you is not just to leave you in your sin and the struggles that you face. His plan for you is a process to make you into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and those whom He foreknew. I'm sorry, and those whom He predestined. He also called, and those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. You see, the hope we have, it doesn't end at the moment of conversion or salvation. The hope we have is that as sin exists because sin exists, God's grace exists because God exists, His redemption exists because His grace exists, and that redemption leads to restoration. Not simply being left in this hurtful, hard, difficult state, but being or being made to be who He created you to be. Being made new. All the impurities pushed out. The story about the silver, I read once, I don't remember where I read this at, but a refiner, a silver refiner was asked one time, how do you know when the silver's done? How do you know when all the impurities are gone? The process is that the refiner would stick the silver in the fire He'd bring it back and look at it, stick it back in the fire. He'd bring it back and he'd look at it, stick it in the fire, and he'd bring it back and look at it. And somebody asked this refiner one time, he said, how do you know when it's done? How how do you know when all the impurities are gone? And he said, because I can see myself in it. See, God is not done with you until he sees himself in you. He is creating you, recreating you to be in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He is restoring you. He is making you new. This process that we endure is His process. He is the God of it. The obstacles that we face, they're not difficulties that He gets to sit back and laugh at. But they are difficulties that He brings us through and provides for us through so that we can recognize Him and His power. And then, As that process continues, your strength, your endurance, it grows. Your faith, it grows. And that leads to great hope that doesn't disappoint, but becomes a fulfillment, becomes a confident expectation because the Spirit lives within us. Everything we endure ultimately brings us to that place of restoration. We're at a time of Thanksgiving, a time to remember those things to be thankful for. And and as Brent said earlier, the the way I approach, and apparently he approaches Thanksgiving as well, is that it's not something that should just happen today or actually Thursday. In fact, that's why I didn't do it before. That's why I didn't talk about this beforehand. Because we typically, we live in a culture that once the day is gone, we just move on. Well, now it's time to think about Christmas. No, today is a day that we need to be thankful. You can be thankful because the sufferings you've experienced are being used for your good. You can be thankful that the process He has you in does not end here, but leads to your restoration. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we do thank You for what You're doing. And we confess and we we admit that it is difficult some days. And we don't recognize you enough. And we, don't, we oftentimes don't see how you're working. Father, help us endure. Help us to follow you. Help us to do the work that you've called us to. Don't let us use your providence as an excuse to be lazy. And just to sit back and, and think that you're going to do whatever you're going to do. Help us to, help us to stand and, and endure to be steadfast, to be a people who follow you no matter what the cost. To be a people who love you unconditionally as you have loved us first. Help us to be a people 
who are used to demonstrate your glory to the world around us, that, that they might witness the work that you're doing in us and through us. Father, we just pray for your hand and for your continued work in our lives. Help us as we doubt you because of the, the difficulty. Help us as we struggle with our flesh in that. Grow us beyond that point. Change us. Make us new. Restore us. Make us what we've been created to be. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know. Um,